morning. This is Deacon Pat coming to you from beautiful Northern California in the Sacramento Diocese and respectively from the Plumas Lake, California area, which is a small little, um, <clears throat> I think, gathering of, of uh, individuals. I wouldn't even call it a town. We have, uh, we have a, uh, a Walgreens and a corner uh, gas uh, station. <laughs> But we're just outside of Marysville, California, and that's the parish uh, where I'm assigned to is in Marysville. It's St. Joseph's Parish, been around for, um, gosh, 160 years. Beautiful parish being renovated right now. And I feel very lucky and very blessed to uh, have this assignment and to live in just such a beautiful part of California. Beautiful people, beautiful weather. Um, And uh, I can happily say that um, maybe we're getting a handle of some of these uh, fires because um, the air quality is good again, the sky is blue, we can breathe. We Even today, this is the first time in a long time, we, we actually opened up all of our windows in our house um, and turned on the whole house fan, which just sucks you know, the outside air through your house and cleans your house out. And it was just wonderful. I don't think we've been able to do that in quite some time. So, um, so that was wonderful. So a lot of, a lot of beautiful things happening um, this weekend and in Northern California. Well, on the flip side of that, I wanted to spend a little bit of time today with the theme of talking about suicide, and um, which is um, a very difficult subject and very close to home for, for me. Um, working in the mental health <clears throat> industry and having done so for, gosh, how long now? Um, 38 years or so? Um, it's been a big part of my life. There's been, you know, depression and despair and uh, and uh, just so many people I can see that struggle with it. And then recently there was um, a friend of mine who uh, decided to end his life. And that has really been devastating to uh, so many so close to me um, <clears throat> outside of my professional world. Um, and uh, just the ripple effect and how it uh, really, I guess, tragically changes people's lives, the, you know, from um, abruptly losing somebody and all the attached emotions to that. And I cannot imagine the pain that goes with uh, losing a spouse you know, losing a, a son or, or a daughter, um, losing even a close, close friend. Um, it's just got to be devastating. And you probably start, many people probably start questioning God and, and just different things in life, questioning themselves. And so I thought this would be a good time to spend a little bit of time <clears throat> talking about uh, suicide and especially what does that mean in regards to the Catholic Church. So the first thing I thought we could dive into is really thinking about suicide as a disease. You know, we are made of the body and the soul. Um, Either can snap. We can die of cancer, high blood pressure, heart attacks, aneurysms. Um, There's physical sicknesses, but uh, we can suffer those, you know, as well in the soul. There are malignancies and aneurysms of the heart, deadly wounds from which the soul cannot recover. In most cases, suicide is an emotional equivalent of cancer, a stroke, or a heart attack. Like any terminal illness, suicide takes a person out of life against his or her will. The death is not freely chosen, but is an illness far from an act of free will. 
In most instances, suicide is a desperate attempt to end unendurable pain, much like a man who throws himself through a window because his clothing is on fire. More so still, to be more fully explored, is the potential role of biochemistry plays in suicide. Since some suicidal depressions are treated by drugs, clearly, then some suicides are caused by biochemical uh, deficiencies, as many other diseases that kill us. And we see that quite a lot, especially in the mental health hospital, is that people will come in and, and they're in such, such great pain. They've tried everything they could try in their life, and, and it's only getting worse. And at times, uh, not always, but at times, um, there's certain medications out there that uh, if, if given an adequate trial on, can change the chemistry of the brain, change the way that we think and the way that we feel. Those are just very, very powerful medications, antidepressant medications, um, and um, can change really <clears throat> whole lives. And so it's just something f- you know, for us to think about that uh, it's, uh, it's a disease. It's, it's, not, it's not clearly a choice. Um, and I think that's really important for us to think about as well. The other thing is suicide is a tragedy, not an act of despair. And, and what does that mean? For centuries, suicide was considered an act of despair, and despair itself was seen as the most grievous sin of all, ultimately unforgivable. Sadly, many church people still see suicide as an act of despair and as the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. But this is a misunderstanding. Suicide is not an act which cannot be forgiven. That suicide as an act of despair is not what the Christian churches and certainly not the Roman Catholic Church believe or teach. In most cases, the person who takes his or her own life does not intend that act as an insult or an affront to God or to life, uh, for that would be an act of strength, and suicide is generally the antithesis of of that. What happens in most suicides is a polar opposite. The suicide is a result of a mammoth defeat. There's a powerful scene in the musical adaptation of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. A young female, Fantine, lies dying. She tells of once being a youthful and full of hopeful dreams, but now worn down by a lifetime of poverty, crushed by a broken heart and overcome by physical illness. She is defeated and has submitted to the tearful fact that there are storms we cannot weather. For reasons ranging from mental illness to an infinite variety of overpowering storms that can break a person, sometimes there's a point in people's lives where they are overpowered, defeated, and unable to continue to will their own living. Parallel to one who dies as a victim of a drought, hurricane, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, or Alzheimer's. There's no sin in being overpowered by a deadly storm. We can be overpowered, and some people are, but that's not despair, which can only be a willful and an act of strength. The third thing to consider is that we can love someone and still not be able to save him him or her from their death. There's a misunderstanding about suicide that expresses itself in second-guessing. I think we all feel that. If only I'd done more, 
If only I had been more attentive, this could have been prevented. Rarely is this the case. Most of the time, we weren't there when our loved one died for the very reason that this person didn't want us to be there. He and she picked the time and the place precisely with our absence in mind. Suicide is a disease that picks its victims precisely in such a way so as to exclude others in their attentiveness. That's part of the anatomy of the disease. We, the loved ones who remain, should not spend undue time and energy second-guessing as how we might have failed that person, what we should have noticed, and what we might still have done to prevent the suicide. Suicide is an illness, as with a purely physical disease. We can love someone and still not be able to save him or her from death. God, too, loved this person, and like us, could not intervene with his or her freedom. This, of course, may never be an excuse for insensitivity to those around us who are suffering from depression, but it's a healthy check against false guilt and anxious second-guessing. Many of us have stood at the bedside of someone who is dying and experienced a frustrating helplessness because there was nothing we could do to prevent our loved one from dying. That person died despite our attentiveness, prayers, and efforts to help. So too, at least generally, with those who have died of suicide. Our love, attentiveness, and presence could not stop them from dying, despite our will and effort to the contrary. This is probably the number one thing that so many that I speak to and try to minister to and comfort is they second-guess themselves and they think, if only I would have done that, if only I would not have done that, then the person would still be around. I think that's a trap that we have to be careful of. Number four. There's a huge distinction between falling victim to suicide and killing oneself. I receive a lot of very critical letters every year suggesting that I'm making light of suicide by seeming to lessen its ultimate taboo and thus making it easier for people to do the act. Wasn't it G.K. Chesterton himself who said that? By killing yourself, you insult every flower on earth. But in most suicides, a person is taken out of life against his or her will. Many of us have known loved ones who died by suicide, and we know that in almost every case that person was someone who was the antithesis of the egoist, the narcissist, the overproud, hardened, unbending person who refuses, through pride, to take his or her place in the humble and broken scheme of things. Usually it's the opposite. The person who dies by suicide has cancerous problems precisely because he or she is too sensitive, too wounded, too raw, and too bruised to possess the necessary toughness needed to absorb life's many blows. I remember a comment I once heard at a funeral. We had just buried a young man who suffered from clinical depression, had committed suicide. The priest had preached badly, hinting that suicide was somehow the man's own fault, and that suicide was always the ultimate act of despair. 
At the reception afterwards, a neighbor of the man who had died came up and expressed his displeasure at the priest's remarks. There are a lot of people in the world who should kill themselves, but they never will. But this man is the last person who should have killed himself. He was the most sensitive person I ever met. Too true. Killing yourself is something different. It's how some of the Hitlers passed out of this life. Hitler, in fact, did kill himself. In such a case, the person is not too sensitive, too self-effacing, or too bruised to touch others to be touched. The opposite. The person is too proud to accept his or her place in a world that, at the end of the day, demands humility of everyone. There is an infinite distance between an act done out of weakness and one done out of strength. Likewise, there is an absolute distinction between being too bruised to continue to touch life and being too proud to continue to take one's place within it. Only the latter makes the moral statement, insults the flowers, and challenges the mercy of God. Number five. God's mercy is equal even to suicide. The Christian response to suicide should not be horror or fear for the person's eternal salvation and anxious self-examination about we did or didn't do. Suicide is indeed a terrible way to die, but we must understand it for what it is, a sickness, and stop being anxious about both the person's eternal salvation and our less-than-perfect response to his or her illness. God redeems everything, and in the end, all manner of being will be well, beyond even suicide. Given the truth of this, we need to give up on the notion that suicide puts a person outside the mercy of God. God's mercy is equal even to suicide. After the resurrection, we see how Christ more than once goes through locked doors and breathes forgiveness, love, and peace into the hearts that are unable to open themselves because of fear and hurt. God's mercy and peace can go through walls that we can't. And as we know, this side of heaven, sometimes all the love, stretched out hands, and professional help in the world can no longer reach to a heart paralyzed by fear and illness. But when we are helpless... God is not. God's love, God's hands are gentler than ours. God's compassion is wider than ours. And God's understanding infinitely surpasses our own. Number six. We die into the loving, tender arms of God. Few images are as primal and as tender as that of a mother holding and cradling her newborn baby. Indeed, the words of the most renowned Christmas carol of all time, Silent Night, were inspired by precisely this image. Joseph Moore, a young priest in Germany, had gone out to a cottage in the woods on the afternoon of Christmas Eve to baptize a newborn baby. As he left the cottage, the baby was asleep in its mother's lap. He was so taken with that image with the depth and peace it incarnated, that immediately upon returning to his rectory, he penned the famous lines of Silent Night. 
His choir director, Franz Gruber, put some guitar chords to those words and froze them in our minds forever. The ultimate uh, image of peace, safety, and security is that of a newborn sleeping in its mother's arms. Moreover, when a baby is born, it's not just the mother who's eager to hold and cradle it. Most everyone else is too. Perhaps no image, then, is as apt, as powerful, as consoling and accurate in terms of picturing what happens to us when we die and awake to the eternal life as is the image of a mother holding and cradling her newborn child. When we do, we die in the arms of God and surely we're received with as much love, gentleness, and tenderness as when we were received into the arms of our mothers at birth. Moreover, surely we are even safer there than we are when we are born here on earth. I suspect, too, that more than a few of the saints will be hovering around, wanting their chance to cuddle the new baby. And so it's okay if we die before we're ready, still in need of nurturing, still needing someone to help care of us, still needing a mother. We're in safe, nurturing, gentle hands. Number seven. We must work at redeeming the life and memory of our loved ones who have died by suicide. There is still a huge stigma surrounding suicide for many reasons. We find it hard both to understand suicide and to come to peace with it. Obituaries rarely name it, opting instead of a euphemism of some kind of name that would cause be the cause of death. Moreover and more troubling, we, the ones left behind, tend to bury not only the one who dies by suicide, but his or her memory as well. Pictures come off the walls, scrapbooks and photos are excised, and there is forever a discreet hush around the cause of their death. Ultimately, neither their deaths nor their persons are generally dealt with. There is no healthy closure, only a certain closing of the book, a cold closing, one that leaves a lot of business unfinished. This is unfortunate, a form of denial. We must work at redeeming the life and memory of our loved ones who have died by suicide. This is what Harvard psychiatrist Nancy Rappaport does in a moving book about her mother who died by suicide when Nancy was still a child. In her wake, a child psychiatrist explores the mystery of her mother's suicide. After her mother's suicide, Nancy lived, as do so many of us who have lost a loved one to suicide, with a haunting shadowing surrounding her mother's death. And that shadow then colored everything else about her mother. It ricocheted backward so as to have the suicide too much to find her mother's character her integrity, and the love for those around her. A suicide that's botched in our understanding, in effect, does that. It functions like the antithesis of a canonization. With this as a background, Nancy Rappaport sets off to make sense of her mother's suicide, to redeem her bond to her mother, and in essence, to redeem her mother's memory in the wake of her suicide. 
Finally, let's touch on God's empathy. A better understanding of suicide will not necessarily mean the darkness and stigma that surrounds it will simply go away. We still need to feel many of the same things we felt before in the face of suicide. We still need to feel awful. We still need to feel conflicted and be given over to guilt feelings and second guessing. We still feel uneasy about how this person died and will still feel a certain dis-ease in talking about the manner of his or her death. We will still feel a certain hesitancy in celebrating that person's life in a manner we would have had if the death had been by natural causes. We will still go through our own to our own graves with a black hole in our hearts. The pain of a suicide leaves its own delible mark on the soul. But at a different level of understanding, something else will break through that will help us better deal with all those conflicting feelings, namely empathy for and understanding of someone whose emotional immune system has broken down. And that understanding will also bring it to the consolation that God's empathy and understanding far exceeds our own. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer puts it, nothing can make up for the absence of someone we love. It is nonsense to say that God fills the gap. God doesn't fill it. But on the contrary, God keeps us empty and so helps us keep alive our former communion with each other, even at the cost of pain. The dearer and richer of memories, the more difficult the separation. But gratitude changes the pains of memory into tranquil joy. The beauties of the past are born, not as a thorn in the flesh, but as a precious gift in themselves. Thank you for taking the time this morning or this afternoon, whatever uh, time you're listening to this, to uh, listen to The Catholic Journey and to listen to such a somber um, kind of reflection on, on suicidality and the act of suicide and how that really resonates within our faith as well. Well, I hope you have a beautiful day, a peaceful day, and a joyful day. And uh, please think about God today. Think about how God places certain people into your lives and think about who you are um, in God's eyes, loved beyond belief. Have a wonderful day, God bless, and forever strive to be closer to God in intimacy.